Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to talk about the uh, big discussions they're having now, what to do when they finished destroying Hamas. Apparently the American government has one opinion, the Israeli government has another opinion, and I think that the Israeli government, uh, their opinion is pretty much what the people want. They want to see Hamas destroyed. Now, there are some people who are taking various different positions, but uh, I want to say that I agree with those who say that uh, whatever happens in Israel, you have to decide here in Israel what we want. Not to have somebody or some other country tell us what we want. That often happens, but this time around, our very lives depend on it. The, uh, the, uh, ever since it agreed to a series of pauses in the war against Hamas, and then the ground campaign started again. It's been been watched by the U.S. As a matter of fact, the American Secretary of State actually sat in on a cabinet meeting here, which I personally think is wrong. And uh, the way the news has it, he pressed for uh, Israel to slow down because too many civilians are being lost. However, Israel cannot afford to lose focus. And uh, if we try to cover too many bases at one time and Israel risks failure all the way across the board, I think we have to concentrate once again on the efforts and the most critical goal of this war. Uh, it is a goal that is consensual, the people wanted, and it's the most legitimate, and that is the total eradication of the Hamas threat to Israel <clears throat> and the Restoration of Israel's deterrent posture because we have other enemies in the Middle East and they have to know that we're strong. This means application of maximum military force against Hamas in every corner and every school and under every mosque and under every UNRWA facility in which Hamas terrorists are, are taking sanctuary. The newspapers this morning on Monday morning had pictures of the tunnels, some of which you can drive a truck through. The terrorists spent years planning this, and they have whole cities underground. The Hamas are taking sanctuary there, and we have to fight without let up, uh, without forbearance. We have to have cold, calculated military force, and Israel has a lot of tools at its disposal. We have to do it as quickly as possible, and of course, without unnecessarily exposing Israeli troops to injury or death. So it's not a question of Israel simply being angry, as some of the Western capital observers have insinuated, Israel is angry. Israel is angry. It is not anger. It's a it's a question of policy. The only way 
to decisively win the war against Hamas and to fix, for, to fix the future for Israelis and also for Palestinians is to destroy Hamas now. The, we do not have a cycle of violence. They say there's a cycle. There's no cycle of violence. We have to restart uh, or we make sure that we win the war and we have to maintain in the background our relations with other Arab nations. But the only way to start the drive towards Saudi-Israeli reconciliation and broader Mideast Midi stability and peace is to destroy Hamas because Hamas is not popular among the Arab states either. Everything else is secondary. Destroying Hamas is primary. Every other interest, no matter how, how compassionate, no matter how pressing, must remain subordinate to the master goal of erasing Hamas's control of the Gaza Strip. Nothing, nothing at all, should distract Israel from our focus. Nothing should keep us from achieving the fullest possible victory over Hamas. Hamas must be destroyed in Gaza. Also, that means uh, humanitarian concerns, uh, both for the Israelis who remain hostage by Hamas and for the Palestinians themselves who are essentially being hostage by Hamas, every, all these things must be on the sidelines. It's not easy. But concern for the hostages, the Palestinians are brutally kept captive by Hamas in every way, cannot dominate Israel's decision-making. In other words, Israel cannot be dragged into a hostage negotiation, which is essentially a horror show, which reinforces Hamas' dominance in Palestinian politics, and it, it, it saps Israel's national consensus. We have to prosecute this war to its fullest. Uh, it means that Israel cannot tie itself into knots trying to satisfy every, every outrageous international humanitarian law regulation that was made up especially and is applied only to Israel. It means that Israel cannot succumb to international pressures to provide more fuel for Gaza because essentially when you provide fuel for Gaza, you're giving fuel to the enemy. Now, the, uh, we, can, we must hold ourselves accountable only to ourselves. We, uh, we, there are all kinds of false accusations against us, but we have to not listen to any of this. It means that Israel cannot um, accept calls for long-time Israeli territorial withdrawals based on the, the so-called Palestinian Authority, which is in, 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 unable to govern. The Palestinian Authority was kicked out of Gaza. Palestinian Authority only maintains itself in the West Bank because it's protected by Israeli troops. The Israelis, Israeli leaders have to repulse any pressures 
and they have to focus on the imperative of the moment, which is obliteration of Hamas, in order to sustain security for Israel and restoration of Israel's regional deterrent posture. Otherwise, there will be no peace in the Middle East, and there may be no future at all for Israel. Those who profess to care about Israel, who said Israel's right to defend itself, simply can't play both sides of the game. They can't call for uh, all sides to end the cycle of violence. There is no cycle of violence. There's violence by the, and, um, by the terrorists, and when Israel's respond, they, they want to call it a cycle. It's not a cycle. Uh, would you call the Second World War, Second World War a cycle of violence? I don't think so. Neutrality is really complicity in the crimes of Hamas. Calling for a, an immediate ceasefire does not permanently defeat Hamas. is essentially a call for the destruction of Israel. We can't leave Hamas on its feet. In broader perspective, Israel must push back against the global criticism of Israel and whenever our army gets into actual combat with the likes of Hamas and, and Islamic Jihad, whether this happens in Gaza or Jenin or in Jerusalem even, the hypocrisy of the critics of Israel is simply astounding. Just who exactly has the right to tell Israel how to defend its borders? Maybe the EU, the European Union, or the United Nations Security Council, neither of which has done anything about the 11-year-long 11, 11 civil struggle in Syria or the what, what Iran's doing across the Middle East. None of these organizations, not the UN, not the EU, have the right to uh, oppose Israel's defensive actions in the territories and along our borders nor is really military operations between its borders, even if our army were to use indiscriminate or near nuclear force. So what? We aren't, by the way. It's a, we've lost troops because we're too careful. There was a report in the paper the other day that some of our men were killed because they, were avoid, they, didn't, they wanted to avoid their harming civilians in Gaza. And they put themselves in danger, and they lost their lives. Now, the Israel did not need to apologize for defending itself against terrorists. Uh, Israel doesn't have to defend itself against uh, terror attacks from tunnels or rocket barrages. And uh, there are also pro-terrorist, anti-Israel NGOs in other countries. Soon enough, we'll probably have to also say that Israel not apologize for striking uh, the, the, the command post in, deep in Lebanon also, Israel must never apologize for repeatedly reminding, reminding the world that Jews are not foreigners in their own homeland. Israel is not occupying force anywhere. From, from the Jordan to the sea, we are not an, an occupying force. We have a right to defend our homeland without being subjected to all kind of censure and all kind of second-guessing. The nations of the world ought to be exceedingly circumspect 
in telling Israel what to do or how to conduct our policies, or whether to erect its security fences or how to conduct its military campaigns, where we're going to draw our borders and how to defend them. Nobody should have the nerve to t say anything to us on any new subjects because the world has failed the Jewish people throughout history, all the way to the Holocaust. And Israel was so wrong with the crazy hopes for the Oslo Accords, the Arab Spring, and the JCPOA nuclear deal with Iran. The nations of the world ought to give Israel leaders the benefit of the doubt. They ought to respect Israeli decision-making, not sneer at it. When Israel's leaders proceed cautiously in, in any, whether it's militarily or diplomatically, we have to make to make the decisions ourselves. The uh, As a matter of fact, I have here a uh, quotation from Menachem Begin. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the Begin said the following, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure it was the UN or with President Reagan. He said the following, it's a quote from Begin. We will be nobody's cowering Jew. We won't wait for the Americans or the United States to save us. Those days are over. We have to defend ourselves. Without readiness for self-sacrifice, there will be another Auschwitz. And if we have to pay a price for the sake of our self-defense, then we will have to pay it. The people of Israel have three, lived 3,700 years without a memorandum of understanding with America and will continue to live without a memorandum of understanding for another 3,700 years. There's no, that's, that's I'm quoting Begin. Now there's no doubt he was grateful for American support of Israel but he understood that an independent Israel wasn't going to bend to the, the wishes of another nation. A strong U.S.-Israel relation is one where America doesn't pressure Israel to take steps against its own interests. When asked about Secretary Blinken's comment about Israel not having the credit to fight in South Gaza, as it did in North Gaza, it was, it, it, this is something that, that uh, Blinken said. So our Prime Minister Netanyahu answered him, and I quote, I told him that we have sworn, and I have sworn, to destroy Hamas. Nothing will stop us. This is the same Hamas, it's the same Hamas that committed the terrible massacre on October 7th. The same Hamas that is trying to murder us everywhere. In the last few days, I hear a question. Will Israel return to fighting after this phase of returning our abductees is exhausted? My answer is unequivocal. Yes, there is no way we are not going to back to fighting until the end. This is my policy and the entire cabinet stands behind it. The entire government stands behind it, 
the soldiers stand behind it, the people of Israel stand behind it, and that is exactly what we intend to do. Unquote. So you have to keep in mind, Israel is an independent nation with the right, and like all other nations, and the duty to determine its own future, future based on its own interests. Israel <clears throat> does not need credit to fight and be told that it's allowed to fight. We have to eliminate the Palestinian terrorists and their supporters. They brutally attacked Israel on a Jewish holiday. October 7th was Simchat Torah, the end of the high holiday season. So if Blinken thinks he can pressure Israel to stop the war prematurely, he will see that Israel is not a nation of cowering Jews, as Begin said. We were attacked on a holy day, Simchat Torah, the very last of what we consider the high holiday season. We were attacked without mercy. We now must destroy the enemy. That's all there is to it. There's no two ways about it. So, uh, <clears throat> all everybody else advising us what to do, they uh, we don't need their advice. By the way, it has to be emphasized that Israel is going out of its way to allow uh, food and water to come into Gaza because they lack clean water, they lack shelter, and as a result of which the Gazans, the Arabs in Gaza, the Palestinians, they really face deadly diseases too besides the, the war that's going on around them. And if diseases start uh, without proper proper medical care is really going to spread. So a lack of food and clean water and shelter has pretty much worn down hundreds of thousands of people, and the health system there is on its knees, and it's inevitable that epidemics will go through Gaza. And uh, this is what the doctors and workers there told Reuters, by the way, but it's absolutely true. There, uh, the cases of diarrhea in children has jumped there, uh, according to World Health Organization. The uh, as long as the Hamas is going to essentially hold its own people hostage, then the war is going to continue, and there's there's going to be other beside the Israeli bombardment. There's going to be a lot of sickness and a lot of ill health, and is brought about because of Hamas, not because of Israel. The epidemics are inevitable, and dysentery is spreading across Gaza already, and uh, they, they're simply, they, they, if those who, who don't get killed are going to die of sickness the way things are going. So, uh, it turns out that, the, of course, the Palestinian leadership doesn't care, but it's not our problem. We didn't start the war. So uh, besides being the victims, if you will, of Israeli bombardment, and I use the word victims in the broad sense, uh, they're going to get a lot of sicknesses. The people living in Gaza 
are in danger from just about every angle. It's not our problem. It's a problem of those who rule Gaza. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few words about something that does not get very big headlines, and uh, I just want to give the listeners some idea, and I'm talking about the relationship between Israel and South Africa. When I first came to Israel more than 50 years ago, Israel had a very close relationship with South Africa, and a tremendous number of South African Jews came to live in Israel. I lived in a neighborhood called Ramat Sharon. There was a very large number of South Africans who came to live in Israel, and they brought along their their servants, the people who were actually servants to them. They were South Africans, natives, who were attached very much to the homes of the people who essentially owned them, and they came on Aliyah with them. So a tremendous number of black South Africans in the community when I first came to Israel in Ramata Sharon. Now, what's happened is, in the, mean, in the meantime, the South African government, as we all know, changed. It was whites only running the government when I first came on Aliyah. In the meantime, it changed during the 1990s. And now it's pretty much a black government. And the South African government has been as anti-Israel as possible, although of tens of millions of the Christian population of South Africa do indeed support Israel. Uh, Two weeks ago, the South African parliament voted to close its Israeli embassy and end diplomatic relations with Israel until a ceasefire is achieved in Gaza. At the same time, the um, South African president went to visit the Jewish community. They have things called the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, and uh, he invited them to his presidential residence in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, and uh, to speak to them about his relationship with Israel. Now, the Jewish community in South Africa today is estimated to be under 50,000 people. And the community is seriously concerned that not only have they downgraded relations with Israel, but they've also sided with Hamas in the current war. And therefore, they're sanctioning anti-Semitic and anti-Israel protests and actions. So what happened was the Jewish community petitioned the president of South Africa and asked him first to restore full diplomatic recognition of Israel, including the reopening of the South African embassy in Tel Aviv and providing assurances that the Israeli embassy in Pretoria will not be closed to enable the return of the Israeli ambassador to South Africa. 
By the way, when I was in South Africa about uh, 30 years ago, I visited the uh, Pretoria, I visited the Israeli ambassador at that time, and it was that's where the um, embassy was, because Pretoria is uh, the, really the capital of South Africa, although part of the time the president spends in Cape Town. And um, so the Jewish community uh, asked the South African government to uh, speak or and act again to boycott of Israeli and Jewish businesses in South Africa, and that to protect the South African Jewish community against anti-Semitic incidents. So the president, um, this is what the Jewish community asked of the president. Uh, his name, by the way, is Ramaphosa, and he reiterated his country's position on the current conflict, saying the South African government stands with the people of Palestine, who he said have endured over seven decades of apartheid brutal occupation. He also condemned the attacks carried out by Hamas on the 7th of October. He called for all host hostages to be returned. He condemned the genocides as being inflicted against the people of Palestine, including women and children, to collective punishment and ongoing bombardment of Gaza. In other words, he attacked the Israeli government and Israeli army. And he also called for international criminal court to investigate all atrocities and all war crimes committed in Israel and Palestine, to hold all those responsible to account, and all kind of other issues in a similar tone. In other words, the president of South Africa pretty much put Palestine, a uh, terrorist, on an equal level with the state of Israel. So, um, as I said, South Africa recalled its diplomats from Israel for consultation, and uh, what they said was a genocide is taking place under the watch of international community and it can't be tolerated. It was talking about Israel's uh, attack now in Gaza. The, uh, the president, Ramaphosa, said the South African diplomats recalled to Tel Aviv following Israel's ground attack remain in South Africa for consider consideration during the current state of conflict. However, the government will endeavor to make available all the necessary supports required by South African citizens in need of assistance. So, the, essentially, the uh, South African government is playing both sides of the street. The, uh, they denounced anti-Semitic behavior toward Jewish people in, in South Africa. They also denounced Islamophobia. Uh, by, it's interesting, by the way, the same thing is true in the United States. Every time they say there should be attacks on Jews, they also say there shouldn't be Islamophobia. To my knowledge, there's almost no Islamophobia in the United States. I don't know what the situation is in South Africa. So um, because of what happened, Israel recalled its uh, own ambassador to South Africa for consultation, and the uh, they... Uh, there was the threat by the South African government to expel the Israeli ambassador and call for a national criminal court. Uh, and um, they, they asked the international court to, to make an arrest warrant against Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. So it's pretty much of a pity that both countries had recalled their envoys in an atmosphere of mutual hostility. <clears throat> 
Now, all this takes place against the background of a campaign of demonization and bullying of the Israeli ambassador by the South African ruling party and the South African government. So, um, the, so that's pretty much what's happening in South Africa. At the same time, South Africa's chief rabbi, a fellow named Warren Goldstein, has spoken out against the, the South African government's anti-Israel stand. And um, the uh, and he said the following, which I wanted to repeat: the South African government, all global opponents to the state of Israel, on the wrong side of history. Uh, in the most recent action, which joined South African diplomats, diplomats from Israel, threatening Israeli ambassador to South Africa with expulsion, this government is supporting Iran and its proxies Hamas and Hezbollah to destroy the state of Israel and spread global jihad, unquote. That's what the chief rabbi said. So the point I wanted to make is you don't read much about South Africa in the headlines. They've withdrawn their ambassador from Israel. And I don't know if any other countries have done so since the war began two months ago. But I, as I said at the beginning, when I first came to Israel, there was a tremendously warm uh, relationship between South Africa and Israel, and it, that is now part of past history. And the present relationship, the relationship between Israel and South Africa, is very sensitive, to say it. I guess the in the least uh, harsh way. But I, I want to share that information with the listeners because very little is known in general, um, about the relationship between Israel and South Africa, and I just wanted to update the listeners. I want to go on to a new topic now, and I want to talk a little bit about what's happening uh, vis-a-vis Israel and the campuses of universities in the United States. Uh, I think I've told the listeners uh, that I am a graduate myself of the University of Pennsylvania, and the president of university was one of the three presidents called in front of a uh, committee of uh, Congress to discuss uh, anti-Semitism. The other two were uh, Harvard and uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Now, it's interesting. When you talk about colleges in the United States, in the early part of the 20th century, Jews were subject to restrictive quota systems that prevented them from attending elite universities. By the way, this is also true of blacks. When I went to the University of Pennsylvania back in the 1950s, uh, it was known that there was a limit on blacks. And I remember someone pointed out a black student and said to me that he is the black who's allowed into the University of Pennsylvania this year. I got to know the fellow, a very friendly fellow, and indeed, he was one of the limited number of blacks. So the uh, limit on Jews had uh, pretty much uh, become past history, but at that time, there was still a limit on blacks. I'm talking about the 1950s. Now, the fact that the the Jews couldn't, uh, were restricted, there were restrictive quotas against Jews was most pronounced at the graduate level forcing many aspiring Jewish doctors to study abroad. If Jews wanted to earn a PhD, for example, the doors were mostly closed. Schools like Columbia University, University of Chicago, 
were notorious for barring Jewish doctoral uh, candidates. Now, this changed by the 1990s when they began to cultivate Jewish minds. And I'll tell you why. Because, and I saw this myself with some friends of mine, they came out of the army after the Second World War, and their college uh, tuition was paid by the U.S. government. It was called the GI Bill, and the students would then apply at universities, and the universities knew that, that these students could pay for their their tuition because being paid for by the federal government. These were uh, people who had served in the army in the Second World War, and the government was paying their college education, so the colleges were glad to take them in because they knew they were paying full they were paying full tuition because the U.S. government was actually paying the tuition. So uh, so many Jewish students started attending these universities that had previously been forbidden to them. And many of the Jewish students were top of the class, and they repaid their universities handsomely with alumni dues and contributions and endowments. And some of the Jewish graduates of the universities are the biggest contributors to those universities today, and we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. The, um, what's not spoken about and not publicized very much is that in the 70s, 1970s, universities who wanted to balance their debt besides taking in Jewish students whose tuition was paid by the government, began to take in very large endowments and contributions from the oil-rich Arab countries. And uh, they, they took in a tremendous amount of money, and they continue to take a tremendous amount of money from the oil-rich uh, countries. Uh, so around the early 90s, uh, things change. The combination of the infusion of money from Middle Eastern countries and a social movement to promulgate the Palestinian cause uh, began to show itself in the in the universities. The university setting presented an ideal place to nurture a cause that centered on the underdog. The, the Palestinians were the underdog. And this galvanized students, uh, and and a lot of these students were Jewish students from from uh, from not very strong Jewish backgrounds, and they began to champion the rights of the Palestinians, and they condemned Israel as being colonizers. And by the way, and some of the, some of the, um, the demonstrations against Israel now by the these Palestinians in the United States. There are a number of Jewish groups, prominent Jewish groups who support them. Now, it's interesting. What are they what are they doing? The Jews like to defend the rights of those they feel are less fortunate. Because this 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 essentially they have a guilty conscience for enjoying middle class comforts that others do not. We're talking about Jews who come from Middle class to wealthy families, they have they have a complex that they're enjoying privileges that others don't. So, particularly students that are from wealthy families, so by by identifying themselves with those of a lesser class, if they feel they they, they didn't they see themselves as 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 uh, helping the downtrodden, 
and they feel vindicated themselves. The uh, now this this began in the late in 1990s. Now what happened was it really got out of control in the last 20 years. The uh, there's a uh, there's a platform uh, the uh, at universities nationwide in the United States called DEI which means diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that sounds nice. In practice, became a, a bad for the Jewish population. And, and this happened once the Palestinian call was packaged together or enlarged in campaign for equity and inclusion American demographic groups like the blacks that had been excluded, exclu, exclus, excluded, excluded, <coughs> Previously in American society, in other words, <coughs> the Jews who had a bad conscience wanted to support the groups that they considered underprivileged. The most prominent underprivileged group was the blacks, and then the Palestinians were quite smart, and they attached themselves to the blacks as being an underprivileged group, and now you have a lot of Jewish organizations supporting the Palestinians. Now what's happened is, all this has happened on the campuses, including the University of Pennsylvania that I myself attended, and when they had the congressional uh, hearing several weeks ago, they held the presidents of the universities accountable for the menacing and threatening hate speech on campus against Jews. Now that's good. However, the venom sown so many decades ago requires a rethinking of patron of secular institutions of higher learning. All this has happened within the last 20 years. So what's happened is that the university campuses are becoming uh, dangerous for Jewish students, exposing them to violence and even physical threats. Uh, we live in an area where we've witnessed more mass shootings on college campuses than any other time in history becomes dangerous for Jewish students in particular. <coughs> so the campuses today are essentially not pleasant for Jewish students. And there are no easy answers to this. And uh, this is the situation right now. I understand that uh, a lot of Jewish students, uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, benefactors, are taking their money away from the universities until they change their policies. A lot of Jewish students are <clears throat> no longer thinking of going to these prestigious co uh, colleges, particularly the Ivy League colleges. And apparently, the Jewish schools are uh, are getting set up to get a large uh, a large enrollment now, like uh, schools like Yeshiva University. <clears throat> so it's a different world today than it was uh, 50 years ago when I myself went to college. I think I mentioned in the past that uh, when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I was the only student on the entire campus who wore a kippah, a head covering, and uh, there was a very small Hillel house, at, at the home for the Jewish students. Uh, I went back on a visit to Penn about 15 years ago, and the Hillel house was monstrous, really, compared to when I was a student there, and they had all kind of eating facilities so you could eat all kinds of levels of kashrut, 
Now it seems the wind is blowing in the other direction, and Jewish uh, students are feeling less and less comfortable on the campuses. Now, this is a tragedy because it's not just tragedy for the Jewish students, it's a tragedy for the universities, because what's happening is, among other things, they're lowered their levels of education to suit all this diversity and these students from all kinds of diverse backgrounds. So the, the schools themselves are not what they used to be. So this is how anti-Israelism and anti-Semitism, in a sense, uh, is... Um, is affecting the campuses themselves and the levels of education, particularly the levels of the students who want to go to these universities. So uh, I don't know what the answer to this <coughs> issue, this problem is, but I just wanted to share these thoughts with the listeners to know that the universities now and the states are in a sense in trouble because of their, their attitude toward Israel and toward Jewish students. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to share some random thoughts with the listeners at the beginning of this portion of my program. The truth of the matter is that the present war the war against Hamas is different from Israel's previous wars, including the war of independence. Never were, have there been so many civilian casualties. And obviously, unfortunately, it's not a war to end all wars. Uh, that that uh, Woodrow Wilson said about World War One that it was a war to win, end all wars, and it turned out he was wrong. And we can't even use that expression vis-a-vis the Palestinians. But it could and should be the war that will provide Israel with the normal security to which its inhabitants are entitled. That is the war we are fighting. The, uh, the hostage deal uh, came and is no choice but to make it such a deal considering the unique Israeli situation. Because we here in Israel value everybody and we are happy over each of those who are saved but continue to worry about those who are still in the hands of the Palestinians. Hamas, by the way, tried to rig the deal right from the beginning and continues to manipulate its successive phases in order to squeeze more concessions and actually as part of its psychological warfare against the Israeli public. And part of that psychological warfare, I think, is those big demonstrations taking place in the United States. I'm very curious who's paying for them. The government here and the heads of the army announced that they're determined to persevere, notwithstanding possible international pressure. Biden uh, needs to support uh, matters like humanitarian aid and fuel and so forth 
in order to continue to support us because he has a lot of opponents in his own party who want us to, who are really anti-Israel. So it's, um, I think President Biden sees giving humanitarian aid as something that keeps his own opponents quiet. I don't know, it's just my, what I think. Now, if you take all this into consideration, Israeli compliance has been right and unavoidable, even though some of this aid and certainly the fuel that's going into the Gaza Strip is being stolen by Hamas and it, it thus strengthening its resistance. Israel is persevering with its military efforts, and the question has already arisen. What the once the war is over, what what will be our military political situation? Now, the objective outlined by our war cabinet is this the dismantling of Hamas and hopefully with the full support of the US of the US we will not deviate from that aim. We must dismantle Hamas. We have to make sure that that in any scenario, security in Gaza must remain under Israeli control. That is important. Uh, this is an imperative which could require setting up a military administration in the Gaza Strip, a temporary one, not a permanent one. However, this does not provide an answer to what should follow and to do this, we must add the proviso that since Gaza was never intended to contain and economically support the number of people, there are more than 2 million people there. So what is required is a real solution to its problems, and that would in any case depend on reducing its population by at least a third. Keep in mind, until this war started, tens of thousands of Gazans came into Israel every day to work because work was not provided there. Same is true of Arabs living in the West Bank. They come into Israel because there is simply no work provided by the Palestinian Authority there. So um, the both both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are areas in which those who run them, Hamas and, and Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority um, uh, and the West Bank have failed to set up a system that provides employment for their own population and they've been coming into Israel so they can provide food for their families. So in the public discourse today, uh, there are such ideas as creating an international mandate, but the question you ask is, who would volunteer an army for an international mandate? The, um, the Arab countries, except perhaps Qatar, would stand in line to fill this role? I don't think so. They would not they would not send their own soldiers here, I don't think. Maybe there'll be some kind of local organization, but uh, who would guarantee that a local organization wouldn't be Hamas in disguise? 
but the most frequently and persistently mentioned option, especially by the United States, is putting Gaza under the control of the Palestinian Authority, bringing them from their inability to control the West Bank and now put them back in charge of uh, Gaza, this de facto unif would, would de unify the West Bank and ipso facto create a two-state solution. Now, the, uh, such an effort in the current circumstances and due to the majority support Hamas enjoys even in the West Bank means that even after eliminating Hamas in Gaza, a state dominated by Hamas on Israel's eastern frontier in, West, in the West Bank, all this without even mentioning the inherent corruption of the Palestinian Authority and its adherence to the Palestinian Charter that calls for the destruction of Israel, the anti-Semitic record of its leaders, its refusal to recognize Israel's very right to exist, and its educational curriculum of incitement against Israel, this is something that we cannot allow to continue. So, I don't know what's going to happen after Gaza. I'd like to think that the best minds of our country that have our interests at heart are figuring out what to do. Right now, our job is to destroy Hamas in Gaza and let what happens afterward, that will simply have to wait. I wanted to share these thoughts with the listeners because I read articles and I see television programs with all kinds of so-called experts saying what's going to happen after Gaza. None of them knows. All the experts have been proven to be wrong in an awful lot of things, including... Uh, back in the early 1990s, bringing the terrorists back from Algeria and putting them right under our noses to the situation we now are in, the one that brought the Nobel Prize to our leaders and to a terrorist, that we are now living with the results of those who couldn't think what would really happen in the future and the nature of our enemies. So all the solutions people are talking about now are totally meaningless. So let's sit tight and first finish the job of getting rid of Hamas in Gaza. And uh, I want to say a few more words along these lines because uh, I think it's important. Despite the extremely high price Israel's paying with the losses of its sons and daughters, uh, we are in a battle to secure our future. Uh, the citizens, uh, citizens of Israel today, I think, are more united than ever before in their dedication to total victory with the understanding that when the time is right, Israel also needs to remove the threat of Hezbollah on on our northern border. Every night, as the IDF releases the names of the fallen soldiers, Israelis everywhere mourn the deaths of our finest teenagers and young adults. These include soldiers in the mandatory service, 
reservists on duty, and security personnel of all ages and backgrounds. The, the loss of our these defenders who willingly put their lives on the line with the understanding that this battle might be their last. For the first time, perhaps since the War of Independence in 1948, there is wall-to-wall -wall consensus among Israelis about the necessity of winning this war and the necessity of the war itself. I think that the people of Israel understand full well that there is no turning back now. There is no other way to defeat and eliminate Hamas and its very roots without boots on the ground. As hard as this wartime reality is, with the heartbreak we endure every time the name of a fallen soldier is released, Israelis know that their country must continue and see this operation through to the very end. Israel's operation in Gaza today, even though the casualties of this war are higher and, and will unfortunately and sadly likely to continue to rise as the fighting expands, the public morale is extremely high, and uh, the support for the war remains steadfast. We're two months into the war, the support is steadfast. For the first time since the establishment of the Jewish state, the public is united in its support for the war. Israel's spirit and unity are best seen by the unbreakable, unbreakable patriotism of our young people. This generation has been criticized as being, uh, uh, I don't know, the younger generation, the, the, uh, they've been criticized as being superficial or misinformed. Here in Israel, we doubted that they had the same warrior spirits of Israel's great founders and uh, who, who historically sacrificed their lives to lead Israel to victory. In general, until this war started, we suspected that the social media age influenced the commitment of young people to our land. It turned out anyone who thought that way was wrong. Israel's young soldiers have proven they are committed to the longevity of the state of Israel just as much, if not even more, than their forefathers. They have proven that they are willing and able to fight a tough war with complex, close-range fighting inside crowded urban areas on top of a web of underground terror tunnels. They have shown us that they are the true heroes, dedicated patriots, and we can count on them to lead us to victory. Uh, yeah, up to now, it sounds pretty much like I've been preaching. I just listened to what I said in the first few minutes of this portion of my program. And uh, I want now to uh, say a few words uh, about something a little bit different, but I think it's important. 
what do young U.S. Jews feel about Israel? What does pro-Israel mean? In, in light of the Israel-Gaza war, several polls in the United States, including polls of the Jewish population, have shown that most Americans, including the majority of Jewish Americans, uh, see themselves as pro-Israel. Now, that order ordinarily should sound like good news. They're pro-Israel. But there is one statement in the polling support. Uh, it was done by something called the Jewish Electoral Institute to give pause when consider what does pro-Israel really mean. Younger Jews express different views than others. While younger Jews still apparently identify as pro-Israel, they significantly differed in their attitudes from older Jews. According to this um, survey, the, the younger Jewish population showed less support in sending aircraft carriers to the region, less support for President Biden's visit to Israel, more support for humanitarian pauses and a ceasefire, all arguably not consistent with a pro-Israel attitude. If you go back to some research projects done a few years ago, one of the conclusions was that Jewish Americans who defined themselves as liberal are becoming more and more indistinguishable from other liberal Americans when it comes to attitude toward Israel. And this trend is perhaps nowhere as pronounced as with the younger Jewish American population the something that more and more studies are finding. That trend may also show why support for Israel among Jewish Americans in the future may be different than what we see now. The, uh, the, the, when Jew, 200 Jewish Americans under the age of 40 were asked if they considered themselves pro-Israel, 65% agreed. But a younger group is down to 35%. And over 70% agreed that Hamas committed atrocities and war crimes, but the uh, a substantial over 40% also said that Israel was guilty of the same crimes. The uh, more than a quarter of the sample among young Jews in America believed that Israel was engaged in genocide against the Palestinians. So that it is pretty surprising. The uh, Interesting, by the way, one of the questions asked was, uh, if the election were held today in your district and a Democratic member of the squad like Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar were running against a moderate Republican, who would you vote for? So uh, about uh, 42% say would vote for these two members of Congress who are anti-Israel. The, by the way, one of them was censured by the House for his statements on the Israel-Gaza uh, uh, war. So why, why are so many in a clearly pro-Israel population believe that Israel is guilty of war crimes and genocide against the Palestinians? And why are so many younger Jewish Americans are willing to cast a vote for people Tlaib and Omar? It's something which is, just doesn't make any sense. More and more studies of Jewish Americans are showing a drift away from the traditional connection with Israel that was expected in a previous generation.
So as this segment, the younger segment of the Jewish population grows larger in the United States and the trend continues, we can expect a more tempered and conditional relation with the state of Israel. Many young Americans, it seems, Jewish Americans, are continuing on the same road the previous studies found, the road to merging attitudes with the non-Jewish liberal and progressive voices in the general population. Now, the majority are still supportive in a more traditional sense, but Jewish Americans need to ask how much longer this will be the case. So this is a very, I believe, a very serious problem. The issue, I, perhaps the problem, is that most Jews in the United States look to define their Jewish identity as an expression of a social justice as interpreted by other progressive movements. Israel will play an increasingly marginal and eventual more alien and hostile role to these people. Their Jewishness doesn't matter that much to them anymore. They're more interested in being progressive and more, more modern. Now, the uh, so this, this is a situation. We really try to, must do something. I don't know what the form of education of the young American Jews or what, but the American young American Jews are turning away from Israel. This apparently is a fact, something that has to be worried about at least. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi. I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to talk just for a moment about the myth of escalating settler violence. I think the listeners know that um, I myself was a settler. I lived in a community in Samaria. Uh, I lived there from uh, 1985 or 86 until I came to live in Jerusalem around... uh, about 15 years ago. At any rate, I still have a daughter living in the settlement where I live myself. I was actually one of the founders of the settlement. And one of the things that bother me now, the there is a myth of settler violence. Everybody from the U.S. president to other organizations like B'Tselem is propagating the myth that settlers in the West Bank are exploiting the war against Hamas to invade private lands and attack Palestinians in the West Bank in a never-seen-before level of violence. As a matter of fact, the American Vice President Kamala Harris spoke with our President Herzog several weeks ago. He said it, she found it necessary to scold him about holding extremist settlers accountable for the acts. The U.S. Uh, U- US State Department spokesman about two weeks ago denounced what he called unprecedented levels of violence 
by Israeli extremist settlers targeting Palestinians and their property, displacing entire communities. That was a terrible exaggeration. The, the situation is supposedly so bad that it's spiraling out of control. And the United States two weeks ago announced visa bans on extremist settlers. Except that all this is not true. There is no escalating or unprecedented wave of settler violence in Judea and Samaria under cover of the war in Gaza. This focus now, which is really frenzied, frenzied focus on settler terrorism by the highest officials in Washington is simply not true. It's based on fake news. Now the question is, why is such news being bandied about? Apparently, this is to balance the crimes of Hamas, the way for wishy-washy friends of Israel or extreme left Israelis to distance themselves from Israeli bad guys. In other words, the bad guys are the settlers while being forced to condemn Palestinian bad guys also. In other words, these left-wingers and members of the American government say, well, the Palestinians are bad guys, we know that, so we have to establish some kind of Jewish bad guys to balance them. So, in other words, this is an attempt to uphold some degree of perverse moral equivalence between Israelis and Palestinians to express equivalent condemnation on all sides for the cycle of violence. Uh, the, this is all being done by the professional Middle East experts and journalists, and they like to talk about themselves being fair-minded, and therefore they have to make it seem like Israelis are just as bad as Hamas. Uh, it, this includes, by the way, the, uh, the, the Secretary General of the, U, of the UN, and uh, he makes all these comparisons between this almost non-existence fringe phenomenon in the West Bank of Jews, violent Jews. The, uh, he makes it sound like, uh, they keep using the word the cycle of violence, to make it sound like all the Israelis and the Palestinians were engaging in murder just for fun or out of comparable burning hatred, this is this is this is all false. So there's something called Israel Security Agency, which is known as the Shin Bet, which is the government arm responsible for tracking and countering violence in Judea and Samaria. And they take statistics from the detailed and precise statistics. It's crystal clear there has not been a significant increase in right-wing Israeli violence against Palestinian Arabs in Judea and Samaria even since the beginning of the current war in Gaza. It's particularly, you can compare it to what uh, between um, January and July of 2023, in other words, the six months before the present war began. There's been no surge in settler violence. Uh, 
uh, as compared to the same period a year previously. Overall, according to the report from the Shimbed, the level of friction or violence in 2023 is about the same as that of 2022. It, it, the national numbers, by the way, is like a thousand incidents of violence of all types. Violence in this context means many different things. It can be verbal altercation, it can be rock throwing, which, which the report calls uh, harassment and friction. You throw a rock, that's friction. There's spray painting of anti-Arab slogans and undercover vandalism, including um, agricultural vandalism. There's firebombing of homes. There's all kinds of things listed in a report by the Israel Security Agency. In fact, the most serious type of incident dropped by 50% as compared to last year. The, uh, there, there were zero incidents of terror, terrorist strikes over the past 60 days. There's no evidence whatsoever of this terrible accusation against the settlers that 600 Palestinians and 13 communities were forced to abandon their homes due to fear of settler attacks. That's all a lie. It's a left-wing lie. The, the, these organizations, these leftist organizations, like uh, B'Tselem, Yezidin, and also the Palestinian Authority itself, the Health Ministry, uh, and the, uh, the, also the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Activities, which is pretty anti-Israel, they've led the, they fed, they fed the international media with blatantly false statistics that, that allege more than 180 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces and settlers, making it sound once again as, as more innocent Palestinian civilians are targeted by settler violence. This is simply not true. In fact, 99.9% of these deaths are Palestinian terrorists who were eliminated by the Israeli army in counter-terrorist operations against Hamas and Fatah and weapons factories in Jenin and Nablus and Hebron and elsewhere in the West Bank. The, the, um, these counter-terrorist operations by the Israeli army are the only thing that prevents the kind of genocidal attack that we saw on October 7th. The, um, in other words, what happened on October 7th came about because the terrorists in Gaza planned and prepared everything. And the idea in the so-called West Bank, which we call the Judean Samaria, the, the idea is prevent this from, ha from happening by getting to the sources of the terror before they can act. So what doesn't stop the Palestinian Authority or the UN to make more false allegations of so-called settler violence. In fact, most of what happens is acts by the Israeli army to prevent terrorist violence. That's what these things are. So, so in case officials in Washington have forgotten, I want to give them a reminder. In 2022, last year, there were more than 5,000 Palestinian terrorist attacks against Israeli Jews. That includes car ramming, 
shooting, stabbing, bombing of innocent men, women, and children. These attacks included 500 Molotov cocktail attacks, like firebombing. More than 150 Israelis were injured. There was a 210% rise in rock-throwing incidents in 2021 compared to 2020, and a 156% rise in bomb-throwing incidents in 2021 over 2020. And all this is based information available from the Israel Security Agency, known as the Shin Bet. The, um, in, in the spring and summer of 2023, Palestinian terrorists slaughtered close to 40 Israelis in and beyond the Green Line with more than 3,600 recorded acts of Palestinian and Arab terrorists throughout Israel, including 2,118 cases of rock throwing, 799 fire bombings, 18 attempted stabbings, and six vehicular assaults. All this is information available from the Israeli security agency, the Shim Bet. So, is there Jewish violence in Judea and Samaria? Is there? There is some. That's true, there is some, which is unacceptable. And you have no sympathy uh, for the people who do that kind of thing. Israel must aggressively combat this lawlessness while acting even more aggressively against the high rate of Arab terrorism. The uh, the, the question is, it, 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 it makes the people who don't like settlement make it sound like there's an out-of-control surge in settler violence. That is simply not true. Uh, you can ask yourself an even more basic question. I can say this as having been a settler and having children who are settlers. You can ask yourself, is there a culture of Jewish violence in settler communities? The answer is no. In fact, attacks on Palestinian property and individuals committed by a few extremists at the fringes or the community that there's over a half million people living in Judea and Samaria. Samaria, it is overwhelmingly peaceful. And uh, the truth of the matter is, if you look at the level of violence in that area, the uh, there's less level of violence. That it's lower than the level of violence by Israelis against Israelis than in the Tel Aviv area. So, and I don't want to diminish the ugliness of extremist Israeli attacks on Palestinians. And the violence by some of these settlers, who I disagree with, but violence there also pales in comparison to the regular 5,000 Palestinian stone-throwing and bomb-and-shooting attacks a year aimed at killing Israeli civilians. Now, and, and of course, this completely pales in comparison to 1,200 Israelis slaughtered by Hamas on October 7th. But there, there are more than 10,500 rockets and missiles have been fired Hamas into Israel over the past seven weeks. So, uh, the Israel 
is now reeling from the October 7th Hamas massacre. It was a massacre, the worst massacre of Jews since the Second World War. And Israel rightly expects global support for its war effort against Hamas. And it's, it is really not, it makes no sense that some feel the need to conjure up a force, conjure up a false moral counterweight to Hamas violence by talking about something called surging settler violence, which simply does not exist. Essentially, I think that the, the term settler violence is an effort to limit sympathy for Israel and to essentially excuse Hamas atrocities. The, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Professors at Harvard and MIT and the uh, University of Pennsylvania, which is my own alma mater, were asked to talk about these things, and they they are uh, it, it, they said they're they when they asked the questions, they disgracefully said they're putting the violence on all sides into context. Context has become become the new word, the magic word. Stop throwing settler violence in Israel's face. It fights for its very life against Hamas. It's a red herring issue. It's an ugly attempt to discredit the righteousness of Israel's war effort. And since I mentioned uh, the three college professors, and I sort of take this whole thing kind of personally because I'm a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, and... Uh, they, they, these three college presidents spoke before the House Committee on Education and World uh, and Workforce. They were asked about anti-Semitism on college campuses. And the, the pre- these presidents, uh, including from, um, from from my own alma mater, Penn, witnessed the the all three universities have witnessed a dramatic spike in. Uh, even violent anti-Semitism over the past few weeks since Hamas uh, attacked Israel on October 7th. These three presidents came up before a congressional committee, and it was a real great opportunity for the senior representatives of three academic uh, institutions. Uh, It was their chance to publicly distance themselves from the radical elements that have overtaken student activities on their campuses and pretty much turned their institutions into cesspools of ugly prejudice and hatred against Jews. In, for, even in New York, New York, the, the, the Jewish students had to hide out. And um, I think I mentioned previously that I have friends uh, in the Philadelphia area who uh, didn't put their Hanukkah lights in the uh, candles in their window, and uh, the students at University of Pennsylvania are hiding the things they used to wear that shows they're Jewish, like a, the mug and velvet necklace and things like that. And uh, on college campuses, Jews are not treated equal to other minorities which means that Jewish students can be targeted in ways that other minority groups can never be targeted 
and those who target them will not face any kind of consequences. That's what's happening on the college campuses in the United States. And the college campuses, and I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, the American leadership of the future is being built today on the college campuses. And if there's open anti-Semitism on the campuses to the point where Jewish students are hiding any signs that they're Jewish or even physically hiding, then we, the United States and the world is in deep trouble. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I mentioned this before, but it's something that deserves mentioning over and over again. The leadership of the United States is essentially being built in the American college campuses, and if there is uncontrollable anti-Semitism on these campuses that the leaders of the campus, the president, don't seem to see or choose to not notice. As a matter of fact, I found it laughable that these three presidents of universities who spoke before the congressional committee paid very fancy uh, consultants to help them make their um, presentations, and they couldn't answer simple questions. It's as a, they, they were asked, one of the congressmen, congresswomen asked, I'm asking specifically, calling for the genocide of Jews, that that constitute bullying or harassment. And the presidents of these universities couldn't respond properly. They said all kind of weird things, like if it's direct, it's severe, pervasive, it's harassment, it's, it is context-dependent. Context-dependent, calling for the, for the killing of Jews, context-dependent. We have a major problem in the future of the United States, because the leadership of the United States is being educated in these institutions. And if they can't get their morals straight, then the future of the United States and the future of the world is, uh, is in difficulty. So I, I, I've mentioned this subject before. I'll probably mention it again because it's something that's close to my heart and which really bothers me. At any rate, uh, I don't want to end on a pessimistic note. So to all those who are celebrating the new year, I wish you a happy new year. And for everybody, things should be better than they've been in the past. Jay Shapiro signing off. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.